Hi, this is Keith Kefchin, and you're listening to Dollars and Drivers, a podcast that allows leaders an outlet to discuss what drives them and their distinct way of succeeding in life and business. Today, we're going to be speaking with Mark Bertha, the president of the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Sacramento. Recently opened uh, just prior to COVID and then had to shut his business down a couple of months later. Uh, really some great uh, tidbits on uh, the experiences they had as an organization and as an individual property to get ready to reopen uh, with COVID protocols. Beyond that, though, Mark really talks about uh, the motivations uh, and the reasons why he got into this business in the first place. And he talks about the importance of living a life that is meaningful. Uh, in fact, he quotes an essay that he wrote as a young man called A Life Unlived, where he wanted to make sure that he didn't make the kind of mistakes that many people do and then have regret later on. So enjoy uh, all of the, the great uh, and sundry uh, comments that Mark makes throughout uh, the, uh, the discussion. I know you'll enjoy it. Mark. Hey, how are you? All right, bud. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Well, why don't we start out maybe talking a little bit about your business, what, what's happening. Obviously, you opened up a casino in the middle of a pandemic, so I think that has to be unusual. So why don't we start there and just maybe give listeners an update on how your business is doing and some of the challenges you face before we jump into the more esoteric stuff. Yeah, that'd be great. Again, it's a pleasure to be with you and... Uh, you know, to have this opportunity. I mean, it's been a crazy year to say the least. We opened up our doors in October of 2019, the end of October. And I literally said in our grand opening that these doors will open and they will never close again because we are 24 seven operation taking care of guests. And lo and behold, four and a half months later, we were closing our doors. We didn't even have locks on our doors to literally get them installed the week that we were looking to uh, to shut down. Um, so, you know, I know one of your questions in here later is about adapting. And uh, we quickly adapted to the new normal and, you know, put together an incredibly detailed 134-page uh, safe and sound program with Hard Rock International that allowed us to work with the county, the health director, and the CDC and others around the world uh, to put together this very, very comprehensive program that ensured that we were you know, using the highest level of protocols to keep our employees, our guests, our community, everybody safe. We were open- Was that across the entire enterprise or was that how much of that you were driving from your own unit? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, you know, Hard Rock has uh, got information and contacts around the world. So they put a lot of time and effort into developing this plan. I think the irony is that we were the first casino to reopen for Hard Rock. So we had to implement it while we were literally still working on it, uh, which made it a little bit you know, unprecedented for us, raised the bar pretty high. But we were working literally daily with the county, ensuring we were meeting the expectations in California and in our, in our region. So it was a little bit of both. But you know, it's a robust plan. A lot of our other properties were able to learn from what we were doing and seeing the successes and some of the challenges. And, uh, you know, we reopened in late May, uh, one of the first in, in our region to reopen. Saw tremendous traffic and, and people coming back. And quite honestly, it's been a very uh, good summer for the most part, only until recently in the last, I don't know, 30 or 45 days now, have things begun to, you know, of course, sort of spiral 
backwards. And that's all over the country, all over the world to some degree. And, uh, you know, we've got a great program. We continue to be very vigilant with uh, executing and, you know, making sure that, you know, our top priority is keeping this place safe. In fact, we even invested in a half a million dollar uh, piece of equipment that purifies our air that you find in hospitals that nobody else has. So again, it's just about raising the bar and, you know, ensuring that we do all that we can to take care of everybody. How do you acquire that? Besides having to pay the <laughs> pay the money, uh, I yeah. assume that those were in high demand. Yeah, they were. Um, it's more of a hospital sort of system that we were uh, educated on by uh, our ownership and by by some construction and contractor people we know that had just literally implemented a system somewhere else, and uh, we learned more about it. And it was the right thing to do. And our ownership, you know, their first priority is taking care of our people on every level. And so they green lighted it and we've implemented it. And it's 99.9% kills just about anything uh, in that category. Anyway, so it's been a long, a long year, a lot of learnings, and clearly we're all prepared for 2021. You know, I'm very optimistic with what's been going on of late, that it'll be a, a much better year and hospitality will get back to some level of normalcy. But I think again, we'll all, we'll all have evolved into a newer normal and you know what that means still remains to be seen. Let's go back a bunch of years to Mark Bertha 1.0 and, and talk about your, your personal and professional motivations. A lot of people, I think, will be interested in understanding you know, how you get in this business. What are the, the motivations and the drive it takes to succeed in this type of industry? So if you could maybe speak to that, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about that lately, especially this year. I've always been motivated from a young age, and I've found a lot of my success and self-identity through my work. You know, the freedom, the independence, the self-worth, learning, growing, achieving, striving always to do better. Um, It's funny. I recently found an essay I wrote over 30 years ago, a sort of introspective look at who I was then and who I wanted to be. And the poignant takeaway for me was sort of a fear of failure, but more importantly, a fear of not truly having lived my life. You know, I had a journal that I kept uh, that I titled a life unlived. And I guess it was that motivation to do more, to be more started from living in a small town with blue collar parents and yearning for something grander. You know, I was fortunate to leave that small town where I entered college, relocating to another small town in Ithaca, New York, obviously at Cornell. Yeah. Know that place. Yes, you know, well, um, this for me was my passport to the bigger world out there to unlimited potential and influences, you know, where my dreams would become larger than all I had known thus far, because I began to see what really potentially existed out there. And so through school and the beginning of my career, I was able to find my passion and I really turned it into my purpose. And so, you know, what drives me each day is this unsettling feeling that I, you know, I don't deserve all that I've achieved, um, all that I've become. (laughs) That's very common, it seems, in high performers, athletes in particular. Uh, it's almost the fear of, again, failure of losing that seems to be even more than winning. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's funny you would say that because I'm at least I feel a little bit better now. But, um, you know, I had this sincere, you know, I've learned over the years, form of gratitude. I mean, each day I wake up and head into work, I don't I don't perceive it as work. It's more for me a blessing and an opportunity to continue to perform, to excel, to learn, to impact others. You know, I owe it to my parents, honestly, you know, I owe it to those who influenced me at an early age. I owe it to those who mentored me, you know, and now I owe it to my family and my children and 
and those I mentor now and those who I can make a difference for, for my team members, to my guests, to the community, it's really powerful. And for me, it's quite humbling. I really can't describe the feeling other than it just gives me shivers at the right time and soothes me when things aren't good and fires me up when things need to be better. So was there a a particular person, let's say, besides your parents, because I think everyone is highly influenced by their their parents. Was there any other person that helped you get on this right path? Is there any particular moment in time you said, aha, I think I found the path for me? I found my true passion for hospitality at a young age. I, I worked in a catering hall in my high school years, from scrubbing dishes to cooking, parking cars, even dressing up in a tuxedo. I was introduced to so many people during all kinds of events. And I love that the business was hard and honest, yet more importantly, uh, you know, I kind of became impassioned with the knowledge that I was part of someone's special occasion. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't necessarily a person, it was just sort of, you know, an experience. And so whether it was a wedding, a charity event, political fundraiser, corporate retreat, whatever, you know, I was there when people were at their best enjoying life. And I was a conduit to that. I also learned that this business was not only professional, but an extension of your personal life and the activities that I learned about. So my parents, again, they were, you know, they were hard workers. My dad worked two jobs to help get me through college. My mom taught me how to interact with others and have an emotional connection to what I do. So I had no intention to do what they did in terms of a career, but every intention to merge those soft and hard skills and those influences they had into a career and a purpose that was, was meaningful, you know, at least to me. So I continued with that image in my mind through college and my first career steps and was able to continue to sort of merge that hunger in my belly with that need to grow and excel at what I did. And that's driven me to, you know, to the next opportunity, one after another. And even when I didn't think a door would open, I would look for the opportunity to to create a new door or step through one I never would have considered. You know, I guess you could consider that a little bit risky, but maybe a bit. But, you know, it never was boring and it's always allowed me to learn and evolve. And that has led me to build a, a foundation of knowledge and confidence that continues to propel me even today. And so that's kind of, you know, how did I get on that path? That's, you know, it's, it's a long story, but it's been step by step, quite honestly. Yeah. You talked about your mom maybe helping you with the softer skills. How does empathy, it's a, it seems like a hot topic in leadership these days. Um, what do you think the role of empathy plays in leadership? Yeah, I think it's critical. I mean, we talk about the emotional qualifications or quotients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anybody can lead black and white. And obviously, many times we're we're focused on that. But you know, and especially in hospitality, we're in a business where we're taking care of people and empathetic with them on their best days and on their worst days. And if you don't have that emotional quality, I think you're at a loss for truly being a leader because, you know, leading, of course, is clearly, you know, achieving a, a final outcome, destination, financial success, whatever. But it takes people, it takes experiences, it takes so many different things to achieve that level of success, you know, in, in any business that we're in. And having that emotional connection with people and to the work that you do, you know, I find that it, it not only motivates me, but it keeps me grounded at the same time and just allows me to really savor everything that I do from the smallest little thing that I can do to the most significant things that I'm able to achieve. I always pinch myself and just have that emotional connection and that empathy for those who have helped me, you know, get to that level. And, you know, and I know it's part of the, you know, my playbook for success on some level, but yeah, I, I was watching the crown 
the other night and Churchill was saying, you know, it, sometimes it takes a monster to beat a monster. <laughs> I, I don't know if uh, empathy played a, a great deal. Do, do you think, you know, leaders are kind of people of their times and circumstance or uh, as a leader, can you mold those I think it's both, honestly. Okay. You know, I think oftentimes we are confronted by whatever is directly in our way at, at the moment. And yeah, I believe you can mold leaders. I think there are some essential qualities that have to be, you know, born into the individual, not to mention just the passion and the, and the motivation to achieve whatever it is that you're looking, you know, to uh, to do out there. But, you know, I think without question, these times really make leaders. I tell my my management team all the time, you know, it's easy to sail a ship when when the waters are calm uh, and the wind's behind your back. I mean, you know, that that's not really where true leadership begins to emerge and evolve. It's when the wind is in your face where you can't see the final destination, where you're afraid, where you, you don't know which, you know, to go left, to go right. You know, this year, again, has been clearly indicative of that. And I think it's made us all stronger and better, not without its its challenges and blood, sweat, and tears um, this year. And so, you know, I think it's a little bit of everything that just molds us. And, and you know, more than just being a leader, it just makes you who, the human being that you are as well. You, you mentioned playbook, and that's a good step maybe to the next section of, of my inquiry. Uh, I, I think about sports analogies, and you hear about the Patriot way. Yeah. And of course, you hear uh, again, about other dynasties, the Celtics of old, the Lakers. So what, whatever sport it is, there there always seems to be a couple. Is there, you know, a Mark Bertha playbook or it's with 136 page, you know, document is, do you have everything kind of focused in? Uh, is everything, you know, go to the playbook and it will give you the answer? Or, or how, how do you just deal with, every day x's and o's yeah i mean you know i wish i wish it was that simple where i just opened the book and there's the answer to every single question obviously over years you know you get a lot of experience you know for me my playbook for success has always been cultivated over many years of just pure osmosis trial and error mm -hmm. studying broadening my horizon school of hard knocks you know and being tenacious quite honestly you know i once had a boss that called me an ox it was actually a positive criticism <laughs> Um, because he knew he could pile more and more and more on top of me. And I would always find a way to make it to the finish line and get it done. So, you know, I spoke about several of those traits earlier um, that I believe have led me to success over the years. But I think, you know, there are things that differentiate leaders from followers. You know, and for me, along the way, I've kept a list of my life lessons that I go back to. That's my playbook okay. that I believe have also allowed me to excel in, in, in unconventional ways. So, you know, personally and professionally, my philosophy of life has always been life is experiences. The more experiences, the fuller the life. I've always been either buried or bored, and I'm rarely ever bored. Um, so I keep endless lists of things I need to do or ways, you know, to drive my business, my people to a greater good. You know, early on in my career, I began to realize that becoming indispensable was a great way to build visibility and opportunity. So when your boss could not get their work done without something that you contributed it was a clear way to become invaluable. And often I achieve this by taking on the tasks that, you know, others didn't want to take on. So it didn't matter whether I knew how to do something. If nobody else wanted it, I raised my hand and I took it. The reality was delivering something was better than having nobody deliver anything. 
and I was sure to learn from the experience. Once you're invited to have a seat at the table, you know, you remember you still need to earn it and you need to make sure you have a presence at that table. And often, you know, over time, you learn to work smarter, not harder. But there were still times, still are every day, when you had to show the team that you were capable of working harder than everyone else to get the job done the way it needed to be completed. And this meant being in the weeds and owning the details, even when faced with, you know, exhaustion. Every detail matters and we can always do better. So, you know, I've learned to never burn a bridge, uh, even when the fire inside me sometimes burn pretty hot. You know, I yeah. think karma has a way of doing that all by itself to those who deserve it. And I treat everyone fair and equally, especially even, you know, the administrative assistant who many times they're the gatekeeper that we often forget how valuable they are to have access to, you know, anything you need. And so finally, you know, you absolutely must have a passion for what you do. And it's really a life. It's not just a job. We all deserve to be successful, but we all really want to be happy. And those are the things that I go to that I've learned over a lifetime now of working um, that allow me to get through anything each and every day, especially, you know, through a year like like this one. There's a, obviously maybe COVID induced to some extent, but the difference between the haves and the have nots, even in a wealthy country like the United States. And and I'm wondering how, whether it's you or Hard Rock in general, how do you put a dollar value on contribution? You mentioned maybe the most important person could be uh, that administrative assistant, yet they're making a fraction of what you as president of the unit or the CEO of the company is making. So how do you go about putting, you know, dollar values on that contribution? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a pretty powerful question, especially yeah. it's sort of an age old question, honestly. And, you know, I mean, clearly, like all things in the world, the more difficult something is to source or the harder it is to create or achieve or the more limited something is, you know, the more precious it becomes. Um, we've been valuing precious metals and one of a kind experiences and rare and exotic breeds and, you know, luxury goods with that mentality for centuries. And I think we place the same emphasis and value on experience, acumen, and work ethic, which all in turn translate to, to business success. Um, unfortunately, valuing these things in the business world is not always a black and white proposition with clear boundaries and rules. The things that typically have the most value have the most impact on the organization and where it's headed. Um, this could be an individual in a certain role, as much as it could be a specific strategy or a new initiative that is you know, it's paramount to the company's competitiveness and success. I think, you know, I think it's best to tie your compensation to the value proposition, but often I find that it's more than just financial comp that goes into really valuing something. I think the higher you go in an organization, the more ability you have to be impactful. At the same time, there's a higher need, you know, uh, to feel appreciated and allowed to do what you want and need to do in order to contribute to that success. So, Valuing people with higher levels of accountability and responsibility, continued acknowledgement and empowerment, uh, the ability to grow and learn in a stable environment and is oftentimes far more critical to the mathematical equation uh, for longevity and loyalty. You know, when this is in place, I find that employees are able to put their own value on what they do and motivate themselves to continue to build that value in both a personal and monetary way that will absolutely result and that long-term success for the individual in the organization. So I think it's more than just money, especially as you make your way up, up through the organizational ranks. Yeah. How do you view competition? Are they just someone to 
beat the pants off of? Uh, can you learn from them? But how do you view the concept of competition? Yeah, uh, I love competition. You know, I've always enjoyed kind of you're talking about earlier sports and I was never going to be a high performance athlete. I always just thrived on how hard I had to work to outperform someone else or another company, you know, whatever it might be. And I've never been afraid of the challenge. Instead, I really invite it and know that even if I fail, you know, I would still be better off than I was before the competition started. I don't envy those who have a monopoly, although I've never really had one. So I haven't been in that situation yet. So maybe it's, you know, something to be learned. But I think competition makes us work harder and smarter, makes us strive to be creative and and also be precise. And we all need something that pushes us to excel. And that requirement exists in both our professional and personal lives. You know, I sometimes get criticized for not celebrating the successes as much as I should, because I'm already jumping ahead to focus on raising the bar a little higher, you know, try and reach the newest level of performance. Um, So I guess, you know, I'm driven by my own internal competitive forces as much as I am by external. I think it's human nature, you know, to compete on some level just to evolve and become better in all that we do and who we are. So I welcome it at every point. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because, you know, in Dr. Jim and, and my first book, The Loneliness of Leadership, we found that to be true, that high performers were particularly a restless bunch. And uh, they were v- very few that were ever satisfied. They were always seemed to be striving for something else. Nothing was ever good enough. And it, it, again, it can be a double-edged sword, uh, but we did find that as a, as a pretty consistent trait among amongst high performers is that okay, yeah, that goal, maybe I set the bar too low. I got to keep moving. There's always someone else to, to yeah. compete against. Um, uh, and certainly if you read about whether it's Michael Jordan, Kobe, any of the other great athletes, it was this issue of competition, failure wasn't an option. In terms of mentoring, again, I can just hear that you're probably a hell of a good mentor to people. Uh, but how do you go about that process? Who's been a mentor to you? How do you, do you formalize a mentorship process within your organization? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I've been pretty fortunate. Um, you know, I've had many mentors in my career from those I've found in books or magazines to those I worked with even at a young age. You know, I was always inspired to learn uh, what I could from others to make me a better executive and a, and a better person. So, you know, my earliest days molding learnings from even Napoleon Hill to Steinbeck and Ken Blanchard or John Maxwell. You know, I remember watching, you know, at a young age, uh, the bibliography show on TV and the stories of these business leaders and world icons and what made them who they were. I mean, I guess I wasn't probably your normal teenager, but, you know, in, in more <laughs> modern times, you know, I've learned from the likes of Howard Schultz's who've created an industry around a product built on guest service and creating experiences Steve Jobs, of course, who, you know, taught you to think differently, to do what you love, to, you know, sell dreams, not products, you know, create insanely great experiences. I mean, wow, you know, what a message that these people deliver. So, you know, I learned early on that selling a commodity transaction got you into the game, but it's really about creating experiences and all that you do that lets you, you know, rise above. And of course, in my career, I've been, you know, I've been fortunate to learn from some of the best, you know, people like like Sheldon Adelson or Steve Wynn, Jim Allen with Hard Rock International. I spent a whole day, you know, I worked for Marriott in Las Vegas, you know, with Bill Marriott um, and constantly saw firsthand the importance of taking care of your people 
you know, you do that, they take care of the guests and the rest takes care of itself. You know, we're always able to continue to learn. And thus, I'm always reaching out to understand how I can do things better. You know, I really like talking with peers and mentors over the years as we have, you know, more collective experiences to share. And we can look back now in the past and how we handle those things now, you know, versus then. Um, but, you know, mostly today, I'm, I'm grateful that I can pay it back by being a mentor to future generations of leaders. You know, I really enjoy passing on my learnings and watching others on similar paths as mine struggle, work hard, overcome and, and achieve. And where and when I can be part of that, I, I take a special enjoyment in knowing that I made a difference in some way in the path of others. It's, it's really empowering. And, and I find that it's, you know, it's really important to me. Maybe instead of a sports analogy uh, for a dynasty, uh, we could talk about uh, Eastern, the Ming dynasty or something of that nature for you. Such you sound like a more global thinker. But but my last question, how do you build a dynasty? Uh, people say, you know, it's very difficult to stay on top. How do you do that? What's your yeah. message for folks trying to build a dynasty? You know, I've got some thoughts on that. And, you know, it was a great question. Um, and it makes you think about it. And, you know, it's probably my favorite thing to talk about. Um, you know, building a dynasty is something we all dream of. Again, you know, it's the ultimate level of success. So sports team dynasty, political media, you know, sort of associate a dynasty with greatness. But I think it's more incumbent upon building a legacy. Um, and this is what I think we should all be focused on as part of our work and our and our non-work lives. I, you know, I speak to every one of our new employees that joins our organization each week, you know, during our onboarding uh, inductions. I speak about the company, the vision, the mission, you know, focus on great service and what makes unparalleled hospitality. But I leave each of them with this final thought, you know, whether they work here a year or retire in the organization, they will look back and realize that they had the opportunity to leave their fingerprint on our company, our property, our people. They can each contribute to the story that has been building for decades before them by writing a chapter of their own. You know, I find that it builds a connection between all the employees, a shared sort of thread that intertwines us all. And more importantly, it, it builds a collective passion. It also empowers them to know that they have the ability, the right, and the requirement to contribute something to that story. So, you know, most importantly, it builds a commitment in each of us that we do the right thing, that we create that memorable experience, that we're there for each other, that we help the next generation of leaders by leaving the organization better than we found it. You know, I find it most impactful with my executive team who not only has the skills and the ability to leave their mark, um, but it becomes the expectation that we all rise together by individually laying the bricks of our hard work and achievement to continue to grow upwards. So I like to surround myself with people who get chills of enthusiasm when we talk about this kind of stuff and who come to me afterwards and they thank me for not only believing in them, but challenging them to be better than they ever thought they could be. Probably like a great coach, hopefully, and a sports team analogy. But, you know, along the way, we'll, we'll stumble, we'll face failure, you know, we'll get beaten by a competitor, you know, we'll face a new normal, and but we'll, you know, we'll rest and re we'll rebuild. But, you know, it's funny that one of my favorite quotes was Michael J Michelangelo, and he said, you know, the greatest danger for most of us lies not in setting our aim too high and falling short, but in setting our aim too low and achieving our mark. And I guess you could say he built a sort of dynasty in that regard, a legacy basically unparalleled, so much so that we still talk about him today, centuries later. Sure. And that's powerful and meaningful. And to me, that legacy and that commitment to, to having an impact 
you know, is clearly part of what creates a dynasty and having, you know, a moment in time to be impactful uh, in the world and to those around you. And so general thoughts about that vision. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy. I know you got a lot on your plate, as it were. I wish you well and your teammates uh, well as you navigate the pandemic and coming out on the other side of this. Uh, but again, thank you for your time. And thank you for everything. Thanks for all of your leadership in the industry and keeping us all abreast of what's new and what's important, especially in the HR space. Thank you for this opportunity. You know, I, I really look forward to staying in touch. Okay. Take care. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to Dollars and Drivers. Until next time, this is Keith Kefchitz. I'm here.